Um, the biggest thing I, we've told our team is that, you know, yes, we do have goals that we've set out for this year as well, which they are very similar to what our goals were from last year, increased them a little bit. Our equity goal is actually 400 million, not the 350. So we want to continue to go in a, in a, in a great trajectory and in a different direction there. Um, however, I always preface the goals to our team that I don't want to have these goals set out there for us to just achieve a goal. Like I want to make sure that the goals that we're achieving, we're doing it in a very responsible way. And that if we, if we, if we feel like a deal doesn't make sense, that we're not going to move forward with it, even if we don't reach our goal, right? We don't want to get into a deal just to reach the goal, right? And so that's something that we stress with our team a lot. It's one of the things that even last year, when we set our goals, we reset those expectations, letting our, our team know that, hey, you know, yes, our goal is X, but we don't want to be just forcing ourselves into deals and getting into something because we want to reach a goal. We want to make sure that we're still at the bare, at the bottom line, watching over our own investing dollars, but at the end of the day, even our investors' investing dollars, because I can sleep well at night knowing that I lost my own money. I won't be happy about it. But if I lose your money or another investor's money, that is when it starts to come back on me and it has a bigger impact on me. Do you want financial freedom, time freedom, location freedom? Want to live large and live free? Then come with me. G'day, I'm Bryce Robertson, and welcome to another episode of Freedom Hack Radio. Today, we have a very special guest, Mr. Dan Hanford. Dan has an extensive, successful background in starting multiple seven-figure businesses from scratch, including a large group of non-surgical orthopedic medical clinics located in South Carolina. He is the founder of the Multifamily Investination, where he educates a nationwide group of over 40,000 members of multifamily investors on how to properly invest in multifamily assets. He is the co-host, along with his wife, Danae, of the Tough Decisions for Entrepreneurs podcast, which can be found on iTunes and Google Podcasts. Dan, welcome to Freedom Hack Radio, brother. Glad to be here, Bryce. Looking forward to it. So, Dan, a place I always love to start, mate. What is giving you the most gratitude today? The most gratitude. I mean, I'd probably say my uh, my foundation that I started a few years ago. So it's uh, it's a foundation that comes alongside, uh, you know, small to mid sized Christian private schools and teaches them how to plan for the long term instead of just trying to raise money for short term projects. To actually plan and and, and budget for the long term and incorporating an endowment piece to their entire. Uh, long-term you know, planning strategy and to set them up for success, kind of like what we do here at PassiveInvesting.com with our, our own investors, but being able to do that with other organizations and specifically with this nonprofit, being able to do it with uh, uh, schools that really could use it instead of living tuition payment to tuition payment, they can uh, be able to come alongside uh, other constituents and, and help them with that, that tuition, but also set themselves up for a success into the future. And then if, once they do this for you know, 10, 20, 30, 40, years, instead of trying to always think about how to raise tuition, they can be thinking about the opposite and lowering it because they have an endowment built up to a point that's supporting a lot of their operational needs. Beautiful, man. That's huge. You, t- you totally give back. I mean, you're a guy, you take a massive action and I can see that you're giving back in a massive way. On that note, I'm actually going to do a screen share right now. I'm actually going to share something. Dan doesn't know that I'm going to share this, um, but I just want to bring up something here 
And I want to share some of what Dan and his team have been doing over the last 12 months. And so right here, we actually have Dan from PassiveInvesting.com. This is their 2022 transaction volume. Just a couple of metrics here. So first off, Dan, I want to say congratulations because you have taken massive action. Um, what you have achieved in 2022 is not, is not regular. Um, it's definitely a huge undertaking, and I very much take my hat off to you for that. Another thing, dude, I'm just looking at this, and I'm looking at um, you guys acquired uh, you know, nearly 700 million of assets, uh, over 400 in multifamily, um, about 70 in storage, 120 in car washes and 25 in hotels. Uh, you had raised almost 300 million from investors, distributed nearly 100 million to investors. Dude, when I look at this, I just look at like how many families and how many people's lives you have improved. I'm thinking about all the multifamily apartment uh, residents that are having a better quality of lifestyle run by a more professional operator. I'm thinking about all the people that can store their storage in these storage units, all the people who can have their car washed, and all the people that can stay in these hotel rooms. And then I'm thinking about all of the teams that you would have to have had built over the last 12 months, meaning all of the people that you've employed, um, all of the people that you're helping create financial freedom for. Um, and then the compound effect of your employees and their families and how better their life is because you're providing employment for them during these challenging times that are progressively getting more and more challenging. And then I'm looking at like 300 million of investors whose life that you're helping create financial freedom and time freedom. And obviously you're giving out some solid distributions there. So dude, I just, I just see a massive compound effect of spreading this positive seed um, here in the U S dude, like you got anything you want to add to that? Well, I mean, I, I, when I look at these numbers, you know, I, we, we were, we're basically just going in and doing what we're really good and gifted at doing. And then we look at these numbers kind of in retrospect and are definitely amazed by it. And yes, we did have certain goals in different each one of these different categories. And to be honest with you, we didn't even reach the goals that we had set out for. So, I mean, these numbers look really, really good and they are good. So don't, don't get me wrong, but um, I, I look at these numbers and, you know, I, I sit back just like you've done just now and kind of, you know, put some numbers to like the number of lives that are impacted in each one of these different types of businesses. And, you know, it's, it's hard to quantify each one of them. Um, but I always look at it and go for every user in the multifamily space or in the stores or car wash or hotel, there's probably at least three or four other family members that are being impacted by that particular person that's involved with us. And, you know, especially when you start to involve car washes, cars, and you're seeing we washed almost a million cars uh, last year, you know, it can, there's, a, there's a lot of people that are impacted by that. And there's definitely a lot of repeat users there. But, you know, I would probably say that we're definitely impacting hundreds of thousands of people's lives um, every single year with the types of businesses that we're operating and also the investors that we're impacting in the, uh, not just the, 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 the lies that are, they're impacting right now, but also the future generations that that money will also have an impact on into the, into perpetuity. Yeah, dude, that's amazing. Um, so on the actual, uh, scale that you guys have been building at, a bit personal curiosity. Um, how are you how are you guys managing the team building side of things? You to grow at that scale, you obviously have to be really really good at building teams. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would definitely say that's definitely one of our strengths. 
um, is being able to build, you know, core and solid teams that can operate um, essentially on their own, but with also some some oversight. So there's, you know, my belief is that there are not just my belief, but it's it's just it's just a, it's just a fact that there's two different extreme styles of leadership, right? There's there's leadership by abdication, and then there's leadership by micromanaging, right? And I don't think either one is the right way to manage. Um, I think there's definitely they're definitely on the other sides of the of the pendulum, if you will. But I feel like somewhere in the middle is really where it needs to be. So it can't be complete abdication, but it can't be just constantly hovering over somebody's shoulder and making sure that they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. There should be some form of autonomy there. And so for us and our teams that we build out, we do give them a lot of freedom and a lot of leeway. Um, we also give unlimited PTO as well because we don't want to feel like we have to continue to manage their time. Um, but they, we want to be able to hire good quality team members that our entire team is remote. So I'm really the only one that has an office that I go to every day. This is my office. It's about five minutes down the road from my off from my house, and it's a place for me to go. And I'm, you know, I got a it's a flex space. There's 1,500 square feet of, of, of warehouse on one side to, you know, keep some toys as well as some, you know, car wash warehousing items. And then there's about 1,500 square feet of office space, which is what I'm in right now. Got a conference room over there and then another couple of offices in front of me. But for the most part, there's only really one other team member that comes in here. And that's one of our controllers that comes in every single week. But I'm all of our team is, is pretty much remote. And if it weren't for COVID, we probably wouldn't have done that either. But because of COVID, it really made us have to do it. And it allowed us to, I think, be able to attract a higher quality talent base by not forcing and requiring somebody to move from where they are to actually move to where we are. And so we have, we have, you know, a footprint and all the way to, from California to New York city, to Chicago, down to Texas, down into the Florida markets. And so we have team members all over a little over 50 full-time people now that are working for us. So how do you keep that like uh, top down vision from like the vision of the company, the vivid vision, vision of the future? How do you actually implement that down the different layers of staff that you guys have? Yeah. So, you know, one of the one of the biggest things that we do is we get together as a team twice a year. So typically our directors get together once a year towards the end of the year and into the middle of Q4, kind of setting this tone and setting this stage for the ending of the current year, but also to set the stage for the new year coming up and to be able to set some goals and some targets for that new year. And then we also get together once a year, typically at our MFIN summit or our MFIN con, if you will, coming up right now in, in Charlotte in June. You know, we get together and even, you know, like uh, right now we have the CEO of Taco Bell coming in to actually be one of our keynotes. And we've actually asked him to speak to our group one-on-one, -on -one, right? So we have some, we get some, you know, specialized kind of one-on-one -on -one time with some of these um, elite speakers that we get to have come in and be able to teach our team directly. And so uh, with those types of events or what we can actually go there to be able to disseminate our kind of state of the union, if you will. But we also have regular meetings with our directors. And so the directors typically report to the managing partners. And then the managing partners are the ones that are kind of disseminating that kind of vision and stuff to them so that they can disseminate that out to their various team members as well. Yeah. Hey, man, talking about um, MFA. 
Ian Con. Um, I was there last year. Absolutely amazing in Charlotte. Like you put together awesome events, dude. I go to a few events each year. I've been to tons of events. Very, very curated group of people. Amazing speakers. Um, I think we had like Shaq was one of the speakers last year. Um, just an absolute wealth of, of wisdom, networking, deal opportunities. Um, really, really awesome. And you guys have another event coming up this year, this annual event. It's in June, I believe. Yes, that's correct. It's June uh, 12th, 13th, and 14th. And so we decided to do it during the week this year instead of trying to do it on the weekends, because a lot of times the weekends are caught up with like, you know, stuff for the summer and vacation plans and things like that. So we decided to do it on a Monday, Tuesday, and a half day Wednesday this year. I'm super stoked on that. I think that's really awesome. And I think a lot of other event organizers should adopt that, especially for this is kind of essentially a bit of a business event, right? Yeah. Um, so having it through those business hours, that's great. So can we have a little bit of a sneak peek on some of the speakers that are going to be there and some of the content and things you're going to be sharing at, at this event? Yeah. So well, I think one of the biggest things that's going to happen here is we're going to be talking a lot about the market news and what's happening in the market, right? Because you know I could give you an update today, but tomorrow it's going to be different, which is what we're kind of seeing right now in the market. But uh, the market updates from the industry experts are usually some of the most popular items that we do. We also have a lot of uh, panels. This year, we've also, because it's primarily a multifamily event, but we've also this year now added a third track that's going to be all about alternative assets. Uh, assets, And so we'll be talking about cell storage and land acquisitions or land entitlements. And we have somebody coming in and talking about short-term mid, you know, and, and mid-term you know, kind of, type of rentals and even long-term rentals, mobile home parks, uh, express car washes. There's a, there's a huge, a large number of, of uh, alternative asset classes, even medical office buildings um, that are going to be talked about there. And then I'd probably say... Um, the speaker that I'm looking forward to the most would be uh, Robert Cialdini, Dr. Robert Cialdini. So, yes. uh, I, you know, he actually wrote a book. I call it my all-time favorite business book because even though it's not a business book, it's probably the the book that I've used the most in business, mm -hmm. especially from a marketing perspective. Um, it's the book is called Influence: The Art of Persuasion, and I really, I read it at least once a year, sometimes twice because. It has a wealth of information in there about you know how people think and how to interact with people and and things like that and um, so it's it's one of those things where I feel like it's gotten me to where I am today and so I'm looking forward to being able to uh, sit down and 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 shake Dr. Cialdini's hand but also be able to interview him on stage and get to pick his brain a little bit and for him to also to do some one on one with our team there while we're there. That's beautiful, man. I am really looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to him the most. We're actually going to have a link uh, to his book in the show notes here if you want to check that out. Um, I agree with you, man. I think so many of these things in business, for me, that have been the most beneficial things in business have kind of nothing to do with business on the surface, but have everything to do with business when you actually bring them into your life. You know, for me, it's been things like meditation and breathing exercises and all the self-development stuff, which I think is a hundred times more important than the systems and processes and everything like that, because it weaves through everything that we do. So yeah, really looking forward to that one. How do people uh, find out and, and be able to register for um, MF and Con that's coming up soon in, in June? 
Yeah, so you can easily just go to mfincon.com and they'll kind of bring you straight to the landing page. Um, it's just mfincon.com. So I know it kind of is a little bit confusing because of the, the con and .com at the end, but uh, Jack made it you know, very, very clear that it's called the MFincon moving forward. <laughs> so it should be very easy for everybody to remember. <laughs> um, so it's just mfincon.com. Yeah. And that stands for Multifamily Investors Conference. Really, really awesome event. Curated speakers there. I'm going to be there. Really looking forward to it. So you and I were just in Salt Lake City. We were at the Best Ever Conference, an intelligent investors conference out there. You did an awesome job of um, being a judge on the Pitch Slam. That was super cool. And, you know, you spoke about it before. You're saying that um, at MF and Con, you're going to be talking a lot about the state of the economy. That was a very big topic at, um, at Best Ever. And usually at these events, it's like the little slice in the beginning. There's like, hey, let's talk about the economy and then let's get into all the other stuff about real estate and investing. But this year, it was like almost half of the content was focused around that, maybe even more. So uh, since you have such a heavy uh, footprint in the multifamily space, that seems to be one of the bigger topics of, of what's actually happening right now and how to navigate through things like that. So would you be able to give me your two cents of what's happening from a macro perspective in the multifamily apartment space? And then after that, how are you guys adjusting to be able to navigate through current times and what you believe is coming? Sure. I mean, I, I think what's happening right now is that there's obviously valuations are all over the place. There's still realistic expectations from sellers. Um, and I think some of those re realistic expectations have been set based on, uh, I don't want to say poor underwriting, but underwriting from a different era, if you will. Um, when when deals were underwritten, you know, a year, two years, three years ago, and their their plan was to exit in, you know, three or four years, or maybe it was to exit in years five, six, or seven, but they're being forced to sell earlier. They're not hitting the return numbers and the metrics that they're needing to hit to be able to properly exit those appropriately. And so I think right now we're seeing a lot of these deals that are coming out with unrealistic expectations expectations because they're trying to get out from underneath a deal that is going maybe maybe is not right now having any issues but will potentially down the road 6 months 12 months 18 months down the road start to have some issues and so i think people are kind of like testing the waters out to kind of see what kind of uh, valuations they can get for their assets but I, I do think that as we move forward into the end of Q2, we're going to start seeing some of those expectations being reset and we'll start to have some transactions uh, actually happening. I think the transactions that are happening right now are ones that are that, that need to happen. Um, and so that there's, there's definitely some concessions being made when it comes to valuations. You know, we had a, a deal, uh, two deals actually in the fall of last year that retraded for almost $6 million less than what we had originally got it under contract for. And I could have sworn that those people, that the seller would have never uh, retraded with us. And we're not a group that typically retrades, but given the market conditions, we we had to retrade. And I was like, guys, this is not going to happen. There's no way they're going to retrade for this amount. And the end, and we ended up getting the job done and getting it, still getting it done for you know almost six million less than what the original purchase price was. So there's there's definitely going to be some of that where there's going to be some deals that are going to be put under contract. They're going to get down the road, 60, 90 days down the road, and then they're going to have some sort of 
whether it be financing issues or whatever the case may be, and there's going to have to be some retrading and some concessions happening. I think that's where we're going to start seeing some of these, these expectations of numbers start to reset when it gets down to the final closing timeline. Because once a seller awards a deal to somebody, you know, a lot of times they're behind the eight ball, right? They need to have it sold by a certain period of time. Mm -hmm. And so if it gets close to that period of time, they're going to likely have to just concede and and retrade to be able to get the deal closed so that they don't get caught with some further issues down the road. I think that was the case with this particular seller is that um, they had some 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 debt service in place that if they didn't get out from underneath it, they weren't going to be able to support it any, any further. So they really had no other option. And we didn't purposely try to force that on them, but that's just kind of what happened with that particular deal. Um, and they were able to uh, come down off the offer price. So I think from that perspective, we're going to start some start and start. We're going to start seeing some resetting of, of valuations. We we have investors that reach out to us now, um, not a lot, but we had a few that have said, you know, are we worried that our values of our assets are are lower now than they were when we bought them last year or the year before? And the answer is no, because I'm not being forced to sell them, right? I fully expect that if there's market corrections happening while I own an asset, that I'm going to likely be potentially upside down in that asset. And that's okay, because I'm not, unless I'm forced to sell in a downturn, I don't really care as much, right? Um, but where I care about the valuation is on the other end of any type of market correction or, 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 or recession or anything like that, where the valuations will hopefully be higher, right? Um, and, and typically they are than, than trying to sell in some sort of recessionary type environment. But I do feel like, it's kind of up in the air as far as exactly what the Fed's going to do uh, moving forward, especially with the, the latest you know banking industry collapses and things like that, that there's, <laughs> I would hate to be in their position right now to try to make decisions, but um, it's, uh, I think, <laughs> I think that uh, uh, it's kind of 50, 50 as to, you know, whether they're going to continue doing some, some, some increases or if they're going to kind of hold off or, or what's going to happen there. But um, I think at the end of the day, uh, whatever happens will be stronger on the other end, if you will. And I think that the the multifamily market is going to continue to stay strong. We still we are still in need of housing in this country. We're still behind the eight ball, if you will, uh, based on projections up to twenty to up to twenty thirty. And so I feel I still feel like from a from an affordable housing perspective, but also just from a housing perspective in general, that we're we're a little behind. And I think that environments like this cause us to be behind even more uh, because more people aren't going to buy a home right now. They're going to stay in a renter's market. So it helps us from a multifamily perspective as a landlord, but it also helps uh, down the road as well because it causes more people to want to build more infrastructure to support this. And even though there's people right now that are staying in the rental market, um, every single day there's new people and more people going into the, into the housing market, whether it be rentals or buying single family homes. It's a constant cycle. And, uh, and I think that's one of those things that's going to, because it is something that next to food is the second thing that a person you know needs to have, which is a house, a roof over their head, a house over their head. It's going to be a continued demand even as we move forward into, into, into the future. So last year, you guys acquired about 430 million, I think, in the multifamily space. You said that those metrics that you um, got the results on were actually a little bit under your targets. Do you mind sharing what your target was for last year for multifamily? Yeah, so the the goal for multifamily was to do about 500 million in multifamily. Okay. Um was to acquire 500 million and we wanted to actually get closer to a billion in in, in acquisitions last year. Okay. Uh, I think it was right under there about 850 to 900 million 
Um, so we, we came short of that. And our, also our, our goal to raise capital was actually 350 million. Um, and we came short of that a little bit. So um, yeah. obviously I'm not going to, I'm not, I'm not upset with our numbers. Obviously we, one of the things that we do, we set goals is we try to set goals that are just barely unattainable that we feel like are just barely unattainable so that we can continue to drive and continue to push ourselves throughout the year. That's awesome. Yeah. And they certainly weren't unrealistic. I mean, you guys got very close on all of those. So with these market changes, with some of the shifts that's happened with the increasing interest rates and the banking crisis and all these things that are happening, we can kind of feel the, feel the water boiling a little bit. Have you changed your approach for 2023? What is your target for acquisitions on, um, on multifamily this year? Yeah. So as far as multifamily is concerned, I think that it's, that's, there's a big question mark on that. Cause I think it's a lot of it's going to depend on what happens at the end of Q2 and into Q3 and, and whether the transaction, you know, activity and volume um, increases, I think it will, but will it be to a point where we'll want to be able to enter the market again, right? Uh, we're still every single day and every single week, you know, looking at deals and submitting offers. And, you know, we're still very active in the space. We're still touring properties. We haven't had a deal for, for, for probably close to six months now mm -hmm. um, that we've actually put out for multifamily. We closed a deal in December. Um, we released that deal probably 45, 60 days prior to that. Mm -hmm. um, probably closer to 60 to 90 days prior to that. So it's been about six months now since we've had a deal. And so I, I don't know how long that's going to have, how long that's going to take. But um, the biggest thing I believe told our team is that, you know, yes, we do have goals that we've set out for this year as well, which they are very similar to what our goals were from last year, increased them a little bit. Our equity goal is actually 400 million, not the 350. So we mm -hmm. want to continue to go in a, in a, in a great trajectory in a, in a different direction there. Um, however, I always preface the goals to our team that I don't want to have these goals set out there for us to just achieve a goal. Like I want to make sure that the goals that we're achieving, we're doing it in a very responsible way. And that if we, if we, if we feel like a deal doesn't make sense, that we're not going to move forward with it, even if we don't reach our goal, right? We don't want to get into a deal just to reach the goal. Right. And so that's something that we stress with our team a lot. And it's one of the things that even last year, when we set our goals, we reset those expectations, letting our, our team know that, hey, you know, yes, our goal is X, but we don't want to be just forcing ourselves into deals and getting into something because we want to reach a goal. We want to make sure that we're still at the bare, at the bottom line, watching over our own investing dollars, but at the end of the day, even our investors' investing dollars, because I can sleep well at night knowing that I lost my own money. I won't be happy about it. But if I lose your money or another investor's money, that is when it starts to come back on me. And it, has, it, may, it has a bigger impact on me. Yeah, nobody wants to get stuck with a hot potato. We're in this for the long term. I suppose metaphorically, I, I think that's a bit similar. I just actually started on a mountaineering, uh, embarking on a mountaineering venture for the next couple of years and actually training to hike like some of the um, large mountains in the world. And I suppose the same concept is like the summit is the goal, but like, you know, you're not going to like go to the summit in spite of like risking your life or something like that. Right. It's um, we have to, we have to make these decisions. And I think right now where we are economically, I think it's very wise for a lot of us to stop and make a pause. And I don't think there's enough investors out there. And I think probably, especially in the multifamily space that are actually stopping and pausing, I think maybe some egos, especially with some younger people get involved, you know, like, man, this is such a big deal. We could make so much money if it all goes right, let's just do it. But this is, this is not the time to like take a chance per se. Um, so on that, 
previously, you actually mentioned you were talking about your underwriting and you were talking about valuation. So first question, super quick. Do you think that 2023 is going to be our first opportunity in the multifamily space to get some discounted properties? I would say yes, because there's going to be deals that banks are going to be forced to take over the assets and these people are going to have to be forced to sell. Um, I've already heard and have people calling me to try to help save them out of deals that are, you know, not doing so well. And, you know, we look at them and if it makes sense for us, then we can kind of move forward with it. But so far we haven't really found anything that really makes sense for us to take over from the, from somebody um, based on the current market conditions and hopefully try to like, you know, save their investors, if you will. I don't Mm -hmm. ever like want anybody to lose money, but at the end of the day, it has to make sense for us. If we want to bring on a new set of investors to be able to acquire something, but um, I do feel like we're going to start seeing, I think it's going to probably be, you know, into Q3 and mm-hmm. maybe even into Q4, we're going to start seeing the waters recede, if you will, to see who's, uh, whose drawers are down, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. Good way to put it. And um, underwriting. So for our freedom hackers out there that don't know what underwriting means, it's basically when we are, um, it's, a, it's an evaluation. And when we're projecting our returns to our investors, it's based off our underwriting assumptions and our underwriting metrics. And Dan, I'd be really curious to hear what your opinion is on what you think some of the safe metrics are in underwriting right now. I've seen a lot of uh, multifamily people add on like 25 basis points to their exit cap. And I personally don't think that's going to cut it, but I'm also not like a multifamily expert. So I'm, I'm curious on what you've got to say about, you know, some of those metrics. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's a very, very detailed and broad question. I don't think it's really one of those things that can be answered in just a few sentences, but um, on a very high level, you know, you, you, when you're, when you're coming up with your assumptions, it's dependent upon the asset class. It's also dependent on the market that that asset is in. And so there's a lot of different metrics like with, with that. And I'll give you an example. So um, one of my mentors uh, told me from the very beginning, and they said, if you're buying a kind of lower end asset, uh, class C, class B minus, whatever, um, and in a similar asset, in a similar market class, you're going to want to project an exit that has probably closer to 10, 20, sometimes 30 basis points higher on an exit per year, for every year that you're into the deal, right? Um, and so with, for someone just to say, hey, all of my assets, I just always do 20 basis points. Well, I, I agree with you. I think that's probably a, a bad way to do underwriting because underwriting is is has a bit of an art, but also a science to it. And part of the art is knowing the type of asset that you're buying and knowing whether or not there's stability in that market cap rate based on the asset that you're buying. Mm-hmm. And so, for example, like a, a similar asset that's maybe in a A-class area and is a kind of suburban class A, if you will, they're not going to need 20, 30 basis point increases on the exits. Because even if you look back at the last financial crisis back in 08, there was, there was a lot of cap rate stability in those newer product type assets. So if you look at and you base your underwriting assumptions on some things that have happened in the past, um, like like the financial crisis, things like that, you will see that there was not a huge delta um, in those exit cap rates uh, and the spreads on those exit cap rates uh, from when somebody bought them to whenever they actually sold them or, to, or from what assets were selling for before 08 to what they were selling after 08 um, when it comes to the newer products, right? 
Now, again, the older older vintage products, I think, are going to there. There is going to be some decompression of those cap rates, a lot greater than what they were underwriting for. And I think those are also some of the assets that, instead of getting a twenty percent plus return on those assets that were originally projected, where they were buying a Class C asset at a sub four percent cap rate um, over the last couple of years. I think it's going to be harder for them to do that moving forward. You know, one of the one of the pivots that our group made in the early part of 2020 in January, actually of 2020, right before the pandemic hit, um, we actually pivoted to only buying newer product assets. So most of ours are direct from the developer or within about five to ten years old. So I think our average asset um, in multifamily is around seven to eight years old. So mm-hmm. it's a very young portfolio, which we feel creates a lot of stability for us and our investors. It's also why a lot of the institutional investors go after those assets because there is stability in those assets. There's not a lot of unknown capex items that just mm-hmm. randomly get that get brought up. And they can hold on to them in any type of economic cycle, and then still sell them at a, at a good at a good exit point. So, bringing all that back together, bottom line is, from an exit cap rate scenario, it has to be. I feel like dependent upon the the actual uh, type of asset that you're buying and the type of market that you're buying it in. And then baking into it exit assumptions that are reasonable based on that particular asset, whether it be a, I mean, if someone just says 20 basis point increase over a five-year hold, I don't know, I don't care what asset class that you're in, that's probably a little bit too aggressive, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I also think that it's important for investors to just kind of see a worst case scenario and a best case scenario, right? Um, and so that's kind of what we ch- typically try to project is, hey, if this property does extremely well and we perform it almost perfectly, this is what the potential is, right? And then if we don't perform it exactly the way we project and it's a little bit underperforming, here's what that exit that, that exit scenario would look like. And those exit scenarios are based on those cap rate assumptions on that asset, on that based on the entry mark and the exit cap cap scenarios as we're going to exit those properties. Beautiful. That's a great way to present deals. That's that's excellent. So uh, talking about alternative asset classes and um, opportunities that you see, I know that you're putting your foot down this year on putting your pedal on the gas on car washes. Dude, I'm super, super excited about the car wash space. Um, can you just start off with a little bit of high level of why you think the car wash space is so badass today? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I was I was first introduced to the car wash space um, when I was chartering a private jet for my wife and some friends to go up to New York City. And as we're walking out to the airplane on the tarmac, we um, uh, and we, we the pilot pointed out another airplane. It was a Citation 10, a Citation X. Uh, which if you don't know what that one is, it's the fastest business jet in the world. Even today, it goes right under Mach 1. It can go from like East Coast to West Coast in like four hours. It's like ridiculously fast. Um, and uh, he, he, the pilot pointed it out. And he's like, hey, do you know who owns that 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 jet? And I'm like, no. Like, am I supposed to know who owns this jet? He's like, oh, that's the local, local um, uh, car wash guy. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. He's like, yeah, they wash over 2 million cars a year and you know, that's their jet. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. So of course that may, made me go down a path of investigating the car wash asset class and notice that there was it was a lot of fractionalization in the car wash space, meaning that there's not a lot of large institutional owners in the space, but there's institutional money coming into the space and that there's a lot of opportunity to be able to go in and have high cash flows because these are more M&A style transactions, not CRE related transactions. So there is 
the real estate that we're buying. So all of the assets in car wash that we have bought to, the, to this point, we were buying the underlying real estate, the land, the building, and the FF&E, the furniture, fixture, and equipment. And so we're also buying, we're also buying the business component of it. So we're bo- buying both the real estate and the business, very similar to multifamily because we do the same thing, right? We're buying the business of, of, the, of the rentals that are of the people coming in and also the people that are associated with it, um, the employees. And then we're also buying the underlying real estate. We're doing a very similar play here in the car wash space. It's just we're washing cars instead of washing or not washing, but instead of renting houses, right? Um, and so being able to look at these things and go, okay, we can buy these things at a from us. They do they they sell these based off of a of a multiple off of the EBITDA, which is similar to your NOI, the net operating income, but it's basically telling you how much money the property is the actual uh, business is making. Mm-hmm. And so typically these are traded off of a seven to ten to ten uh, multiple off of the EBITDA. Okay, well this if you if you equate this back to like you know cap rates, I mean you think about it, if you buy a, a property at a uh, at a ten multiple, what kind of cap rate is that? That's basically a 10 cap, right? Mm -hmm. You're buying these things at a 10 cap and they have great cash flow and have great potentials for being able to exit them when you can lump them together into a large portfolio. And so what we're doing is, is our goal is to acquire 200 to 300 locations. We just started this just under a year ago. Um, Actually this month, around the same time last year is when we acquired our first two assets. We right now have 22 assets um, under management. Two of those are actually under development, mm-hmm. uh, which will be finished later this year. Um, but our goal this year is to acquire another 100 locations. Um, that's what our goal is, is in the car wash space to have over 100 locations by the end of this year. And our goal is to build it up to that two to 300 location mark. So we can do one of two things, have a large private equity roll-up play where a large private equity kind of publicly traded company buys us up and uh, adds us to their portfolio. Um, so we have a great exit potentials for that, or we have the potential for doing our own IPO because our, our revenues will be way over 100 million a year, probably close to 250 million a year at that point, and we'll be able to do our own IPO, go public, and and have an even higher exit potential for our investors. So a lot of great exit options for it right now. Our exit assumptions are only projecting about a 12 and a half x on the EBITDA when we exit based on our current assumptions. The, the, the transaction that we've seen, transactions that we've seen kind of in the small to mid-market of space has been around a 15 to 17 multiple off the EBITDA uh, when there's a larger portfolio being sold. Once it gets over 100 units, we've seen some transactions that have traded 22, 23x on the EBITDA, wow. um, which for us, that'd be great to be able to do that, to see our investors get nice, easy kind of 30, 35, 40% returns when we exit these, these portfolios. Yeah, dude, that's awesome. Such an untapped space. And based off the metrics that you're talking about, you guys washed nearly a million cars last year. Dude, by Q3, you'll be able to buy that jet. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I prefer the fractionalized ownership with jets because you know I've, I've priced it out with jets. And, and I don't know if you can see it on the live screen here, but I'll put my video up. You can see those, oh, nice. those three jets above there. Those are the three jets that we actually have a, a fractional ownership in. And so it's nice to be able to use somebody like NetJets or this other company we use, we use called Velado that allows us to be able to jump around and get around whenever we need to and don't have to worry about the maintenance and the headaches of you know managing the pilots as well as the hangers and the insurance and the bookings and all that kind of stuff. So. I'm sure that's almost essential with the amount of activity you guys have got going on. You need to get from like A to B super quick, yeah? 
Yes, I would I would agree with that. And I would say that the the, the plane that we fly the most is the Honda Jet because it's usually good for like up to four people. Usually we have two to three that are flying around trying to look at different properties. And most of them are, you know, regional within the Southeast. Mm-hmm. Um, but the Honda Jet's nice because it's fly, it still has two jet engines. It still has two pilots that fly it. Um, and it goes the same speed as the larger jets, but it only allows us to really seat maybe four people, sometimes five or six, but typically four people. Um, we can get it from here to, to Dallas or up to Chicago, pretty much the majority of the United States on this side. Uh, when it comes to like the, the Salt Lake City trip, of course, that's going to be a, a citation latitude issue uh, with bringing, using the larger jet. Beautiful, man. Buzzing around, living at large. Love it. So, uh, you know, all of this activity going on, a lot of things, you got a lot of complexities going on there. What do you do on a daily basis to stay grounded, to uh, to basically give yourself the strength to go into the next day and keep all of this sustainable? Yeah, you know, I, I would say one of my daily rituals is to get up around like 5, 5.30 in the morning and I sit down and have a nice cup of coffee in front of the fireplace in our, in our master bedroom with my wife. And we just talk about the day and kind of what's upcoming. And um, it's one of those things that uh, that really allows us kind of set the tone for the day. And um, if we don't do it, it's, it's, it, we can tell, you know, it's kind of, kind of interesting, but um, with my wife you know, and, and, and managing the, the family things on a day-to-day basis, you know, we have four children, 12, 10, six, and five, three girls and a boy, um, things can be a little bit busy in and, and, mm-hmm. the, the life side of things. And so being able to have that time, that dedicated time, I think is very, very important. Um, but that, 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 that to me, I would say is, is one of the biggest things that I do to kind of continue to, to stay focused, but um, I would say, say also that, you know, Bryce, we really have a great core solid team that supports us. Uh, I can literally go away for a month and, and not worry about things. I feel like we definitely have, I've built out a strong core team that can support the investments as well as our investors for, for many, many years and into many, many decades. Beautiful. Given that you're in that position and that you've worked on your business, not essentially in your business, um, do you actually lean on that and take a month off sometimes and kind of like, you know, get out and about? Yeah, I actually do. So typically the month of July, um, usually it's some part of June and into sometimes of August, but usually it's in, uh, in, in, in the summer months. Now we have kids that are in school. We do that. Um, we'll typically go to one place for a, a, a month or this year, we're actually flying out to Bozeman, Montana for a week. Good and then nice. we're going to fly down to Yellowstone, not Yellowstone, but uh, Jackson Hole, Wyoming for a week. Yeah. Then we're going to fly over to Malibu, stay there for a week, and then down to La Jolla outside of San Diego for a week and then fly back. So uh, we do typically try to take advantage of that. And then even Danny, one of our other managing partners, there's two of us right now. Um, he actually spent some time the entire month in uh, in the in the UAE in January with him mm. and his family. And so we definitely do take advantage of that when we can. Um, but I will say one of the most important aspects of being able to get to the point of being able to work on your business instead of always in your business is that you have to work in your business at some point, right? Um, and even with the car wash space, there's a lot of things that we've learned and that we've been able to change and modify and even transform the industry by just working in the business and understanding how the customers interact with us and how they how they how they think and you know how to give them how we're giving them different types of sales pitches and different options and how to modify that and then we can take that back to the teams and and really incorporate it into what we want to be able to accomplish and be able to you know, see it, see it sustained that way, but you don't a lot of times figure that stuff out until you actually get in your business. And the problem is, is that people usually do one of two things. They either are in their business too much. So they don't step back and work on the business, but then there's the flip side of that where people sometimes 
abdicate too much and they don't focus enough in their business, right? Mm. Um, usually it's the other way around. Usually it's somebody who focuses too much inside the business and they're not taking time to work on the business, which is one of the things that we always hear gurus say, gurus say is, is make sure that you take time to work on your business, not always in your business. But my, my philosophy is that you need to make sure that you're spending enough time in the business so that you could actually work on the things that are important that are actually being worked on on your business. Where you can see the faults and see the areas that need to be improved and tweaked. That's beautiful. Yep. Sounds like a perfect balance. Um, well, we're going to have to wrap it up here. And before we do, how do our freedom hackers keep the conversation going and find out more about all of these exciting investments this year? Yeah. So there's, there's two different ways you can reach out. So you can uh, connect with me on our website, uh, go to passiveinvesting.com. Obviously there you can go to the top right-hand corner. There's a big blue button that says join the Passive Investor Club and follow us there. Um, and then the other way is if you want to just follow me and some of the content that I'm putting out, you can go to linkwithdan.com. That just brings you straight over to my LinkedIn profile, linkwithdan.com. You can connect with me further there on LinkedIn. Beautiful. Thank you very much. Any final words? Nope. I think that is it. Appreciate you having me on, Bryce, and uh, look forward to seeing you there at the MFIN Con in Charlotte in June. Absolutely. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for sharing all of your wisdom today, Dan. And for all of our freedom hackers out there, this is Freedom Hack Radio. I'm your host, Bryce Robertson. And until next week, live large, live free. G'day, this is Bryce Robertson. I'm your host here at Freedom Hack Radio, and I truly, truly hope that you got a ton of value out of the episode that we just shared with you. And if you did, make sure to subscribe on your YouTube channel. Make sure to subscribe to your favorite podcasting platform. Hit the notification button so you can find out about the next episodes as they come out. Because if you haven't achieved financial time and location freedom, you really need to be dialed in here. So make sure to subscribe and follow us along as you grow on your path to financial time and location freedom here at Freedom Hack Radio. 